0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together.
1: The Offices of Christ. If you got your Bibles with you, just keep your thumbs ready. I hope your Bible drill skills are up to speed. Because when you do doctrinal things, trying to pull it all together... Uh, sometimes you are all over the map, so that's why I've got some of the technology up today just to help us with some of these Bible verses just a little bit more quickly. So this week we are talking about the offices of Christ, the offices of Christ, and as many of you probably know, there are what three major offices among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. What are they? Can can anybody just name them? What are the three main offices? All right. Well, good. I'm glad you all came tonight. You're going to, lo- you're going to know all of this by, th- by the end of tonight. So the three main offices for Israel were prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Is that starting to ring a bell? You, you, some songs start coming to mind as well that have maybe the verses of the hymns broken up by prophet, priest, and king. So those are the three offices... Of Christ and we see these all throughout the Old Testament, such as Nathan in Second Samuel seven two, he is called a prophet, an official prophet, or Abathar of first Samuel thirty-seven, he is a priest, and obviously King David that we see in Second Samuel five three is a king. So these are the three main offices that have authority over the people of God in the Old Testament. They are prophet, priest and king, and each one of these offices is distinct. Each of the offices is distinct from one another. They have a different purpose. And so if you look at all three offices, they, they focus on God's people relating to God and God's people in a certain manner. So, for example, the prophet would be in between the people and God, and he would be speaking to who? The people on God's behalf. So the example that a lot of people give is that a prophet faces the people with his back to God, and God speaks through the prophet. Whereas a priest, he turns around, and he is facing towards God, also in between the people and God. But he is lifting up prayers. He is lifting up praises and sacrifices on behalf of the people. What the people offer through the priest to God. So you see that kind of relationship there? God to prophet to people, vice versa, as the people to priest to God. And the other role of the king is how God exercises his rule and authority over the people of God. So we see that, obviously, in King David. And so it's because God identifies as Lord, which has these overtones of ruler and authority and power. And so that is exercised as well through the king. And so the king ruled over the people of of god's representative as well so what we see in these three offices ultimately we see fulfilled if you look at your third point christ fulfills each one of these offices perfectly and so when we talk about the offices of christ we talk about the fulfillment of these offices in christ himself he is called prophet priest and king if you've been in if you're in choir you know the song is he worthy he has made us a kingdom of priests, the reign of God and the Son, prophet, peace, and king. A lot of Christmas music also emphasizes prophet, priest, and king as well. And Christ fulfills all of these roles perfectly. And so, first thing that we see tonight after the introduction is Christ as prophet. Christ as prophet. And of course, the foundation that we, we start with is actually with Moses, because Moses was the first prophet. Moses was the first pro- first prophet that we see. He wrote the five first books of the, the first five books of the Bible, but he also predicted that someone at some time, another prophet like him, would come. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, verse fifteen, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, and if you don't have your Bibles with you, I will also have it on the screen. It says that the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see Moses is obviously the the foundational prophet. And everybody that knows anything about Israel, Moses is their guy. But we also see that at some point, the Bible predicts that there will be another prophet like Moses. And this would be on everybody's radar. However, when we look at the Gospels, we see... Jesus coming into the picture, but notice that Jesus is viewed often in the Gospels as a prophet, but not necessarily the prophet. So we've got a few things to work through here because obviously Moses predicted that there would be another prophet like him, and we have some incong- you know inconsistencies not within Scripture but within people receiving Christ as the prophet that Scripture talked about. And so when we look at the gospel, we see this little bit of inconsistency, such as with Matthew, uh, in Matthew sixteen fourteen, when Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And what is their response? Some say, or who do they say I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or what? One of the prophets. So that Jesus is a prophet is really not disputed. We see that early on. Or in Luke 7:16, when uh, Jesus raises the widow's son, we see fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, a, "A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people." So it is a great prophet, not necessarily the great prophet, so you kind of start to see some of this unfold. Or the Samaritan woman in John four. That the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive what? That you are a prophet. Or we also see in John 9 17, when the blind man was, uh, his sight was restored, they asked him, uh, they said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet, a prophet. So we see some inconsistencies in the way that people interact with Jesus and how they treat him as a prophet. Because things are still being revealed. But this wasn't the case for everybody because there were some that specifically was revealed that Jesus is the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18. That he is the prophet, such as John six fourteen. After he feeds the 5,000 people, when the people saw that the sign that they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And this is obviously referring to the prophet that was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. And in fact, in Peter, in Acts uh, chapter 3, he actually quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, and gives us the proper application of that passage. And it brings it really into focus for the church. This is after the resurrection, after the ascension. This is the Acts of the Apostles. And so now, with the full picture of mind, they interpret it for us correctly. And it says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. So we see that Peter specifically applies the the Deuteronomy passage that is predicting the prophet that we're waiting to come onto the scene, and he applies it to Jesus directly. And so the question is, is why do we have some of these mixed receptions of Jesus as a prophet or as the prophet? And I think there are two reasons. There are two reasons why the epistles don't really emphasize this, uh, Jesus' prophetic ministry very much, that we see some of this disconnect. And the first one is is he is the one, Jesus is the one about whom the prophecies in the Old Testament were written. So this makes Jesus unique on the scene, because before, remember, what does a prophet do? He speaks on God's behalf to God's people. Now Jesus is also speaking on behalf of God, to God's people, but what he is speaking is himself. And so that makes the situation a little bit more unique. He is the one about whom all the prophets and all the prophecies of the Old Testament were written such as Luke 24. It says in beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. And this is this is referring to Jesus. So this is why we have in our statement of faith that all of scripture is interpreted in light and is the, uh, the pointing to of Christ. You can't read the Old Testament correctly without Christ. Because everything that the Old Testament is pointing to is fulfilled in Christ. And it comes in with greater clarity. It's not like you can't understand some things. But it's, it's a greater clarity because all that happens in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets are speaking about Jesus. Now Jesus is also a prophet and he's speaking of what? About himself, concerning himself. And so that puts him in a little bit of a unique category. And you can see why that would be maybe not as clear as the prophet versus a prophet. Secondly, Jesus was not merely a messenger of revelation from God, but was himself the source. The source of revelation from God. Not only is he the messenger, he is also what? The message, the source of of God's word. And of course we see this in Matthew 5.22, because before the prophets would say, Oh, excuse me, missed that. 5.22 says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And of course and in John 1.1 1, 1, we see that Jesus is what? The word itself. And uh, Matthew 5.22, before the prophets would say, Thus saith the Lord. But if we notice what Jesus says, he says what? But I say to you. It's an elevation of what we call the prophetic formula. Thus saith the Lord. What I tell you after that, that means you have to take serious. It's not just me talking. Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not kill. That just doesn't come from, you know, Brother Matt, Pastor Matt. That comes from God Almighty himself. And Jesus identifies himself with that source, that very source of saying, but I say to you that same type of formula, but he applies it to himself personally. So you could see why maybe some people would would misinterpret as a prophet along the the ministry line that Jesus preaches and teaches. So the first office we see is Christ as prophet, but we also see him as priest. Christ as priest. If you turn to the back of your handout, we, we see three points that Jesus As priest, he offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. He offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. And we're going to spend, if you've got your thumbs ready, I would go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend a lot of our time tonight from here on in the book of Hebrews. And firstly, in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 4. Because we need to see what Jesus was not offering or what was not offered as So what was not offered for the perfect sacrifice? Jesus is the priest. What did he not offer? He didn't offer bulls or goats or lambs of the physical nature that we see in Leviticus. right? Leviticus and, and Hebrews are good to have hand in hand. That priest offered bulls and goats. And right here in verse 4 that we saw, is those are imperfect sacrifices that could never permanently remove the stain of sin. So what was not offered was... A imperfect sacrifice of bulls and goats that wouldn't really do anything to begin with. But instead, we see that what he has offered in Hebrews 9, 26 is himself. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by what? The sacrifice of himself. So notice that when Jesus asks priest, he offers what? A perfect sacrifice, which is who? Himself. Now, that's important. So, if you have, if you have a perfect sacrifice, let's just say, theoretically, it, it wasn't Jesus. You had some kind of perfect sacrifice. What happens if you have an imperfect priest offer that perfect sacrifice? It's no longer offered perfectly to God. You've got a perfect God who's receiving all of this, and if you have a perfect sacrifice, you need a what? A perfect priest. The same thing around. If you have an imperfect sacrifice, but a perfect priest and a perfect God, what happens when the perfect priest would offer that? Well, he wouldn't offer it perfectly. Therefore, it's not, he's not a perfect priest. You, it all has to come together. You've got a perfect God receiving the sacrifice. You have a perfect priest who is offering the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is this priest himself who is also perfect. And so you have this chain of offering himself unto a perfect God as the perfect sacrifice, which is himself. And, as we see in Hebrews 7, this sacrifice, because it is a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice to a perfect God, really only has to be offered up to God once, as we see in Hebrews 7.27. So he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins— and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So instead of having to do this all the time, he only has to do it once, because it was done rightly once. And theoretically, if you had a perfect sacrifice, perfect priest, all of that in the past, that would have happened. It would have only happened to have once. But that didn't happen. We didn't have perfect priests. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they weren't perfect. And as we saw earlier, the sacrifices themselves were the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and birds, and those were imperfect, and so it had to be offered continually. But with Christ, it only has to be offered once. So Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin through and through. Number two, Jesus continually brings us near to God. So one of the functions, one of the functions of the priest is not just to bring the sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. It's a multifaceted office that, that has uh, hmm, more function than just one, although it all streams from this. But one of the functions is to bring the people of God near to what the presence of God so if you've got the temple or the tabernacle you have the outer courts the inner courts the holy of holies right what does the priest do he brings the people all the way to what the outer courts and that's where he stays that's where the people stay then the priest goes into the holy place and then the final place that you can go once a year is what the holy of holies So part of what the priest does is this picture of bringing the people of God into the presence of God. And the ultimate presence of God is what? The Holy of Holies. The closer you get to there, the closer you are to the presence of God. But the people were far off. They were in the outer courts. But they still got to come into the presence of God in that manner, from where they were into the outer courts. So part of what the priest does is bring them near to God. And we see in Hebrews... 9:24, that for christ is entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god on what on our behalf and so when we see that all these old testament pictures of the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices those are what we call the shadows and if you have a shadow it points to that there must be what A light right without light you don't have shadow right and so these old things it says it's a copy of what the true things it's an indicator of something more and so this old testament ritual of bringing the people of God near to the presence of God in the outer courts and working his way through through sacrifice all the way into the presence of God really just shows what what Jesus was going to do all along he offered himself as the sacrifice and what happens he dies he's buried resurrected, and he what? He ascends to the right hand of the Father, which is the true Holy of Holies, the true presence of God. So that picture of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament is really about the presence of God that we see in heaven. And so Jesus is there now. And so because he is there now, what does that mean for Christians? We in a very real sense, are there now. Because when Jesus completed his work, what happened What happened in the temple right after uh, the price was paid? The veil was torn. That's exactly right. It was torn from top to bottom, which is important, that it's, a, it's an act from God. It's not from bottom to top, an act from man. It is torn top to bottom. And literally it says that the places, plural, that were separated by the veil this veil was torn and this is talking about to what the holy of holies that the barrier between the outer courts and all the way into the holy of holies is now removed because of what Christ has done and he is going into the holy of holies and those of us who are in Christ are also there with him right you can't separate the body from the head he's the head of the church. And this is what I've struggled with with most of the day because it's hard to formulate this without accidentally slipping into heresy. And so it's already true right now because Christ is in the presence of God, correct? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's the Holy of Holies. The true Holy of Holies is the presence of God. And we are what? In Christ. So we, as the people, are also brought into the Holy of Holies, not just the outer courts anymore, but to the actual presence of God. And what we will see in the final resurrection when, when Christ consummates the, the marriage with His church, brings up the bodily resurrection, we will have a, a more full apprehension of the very real thing that is happening right now because Christ is continuing to bring the people near to God. That is the function as priest. We also see in Hebrews 6.19 that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a halt that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on what? On our behalf. It's, it is as if we are there, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we won't talk about Melchizedek. There's lots of controversy there. I'll let y'all fight about that later. But notice that it is on our behalf that he brings the people of God into the presence of God, into the true Holy of Holies. And so thirdly, Jesus as priest, he continues to what? Pray for us. He continues to pray for us. That's one of the functions of the priest offers sacrifices brings the people near to God and lifts up praise and prayers on behalf of the people up to God and Jesus is doing the exact same thing in Hebrews 7:25 it says that he is constantly he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he what always lives to make intercession for them and so that should give us incredible comfort that Jesus on Our behalf is praying for his people. When you're sleeping, Jesus is praying. When you're in sin, Jesus is praying. When you feel close to God, Jesus is still praying. He is praying on your behalf because he is the perfect high priest who lives forever. And this intercession on our behalf is the same word that we use for prayers. The incense rising, the interceding on behalf of the people are rising up from the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice. Paul says the same thing, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. So the New Testament is crystal clear that Jesus is not doing nothing beside the Father. He is doing something. He is interceding for his people. He is continually uh, fulfilling his role as prophet, priest and king, and he is interceding on our behalf as the true high priest. So that is Christ as priest, and the final office that we see is Christ as king. Christ as king. And i don 't think many people argue with this very much, honestly, because we see it pretty sta- plainly stated. But some of, the, some of the fallout questions might, you could debate about. But the thing that we can rest assured is that Christ is king. The first announcement we see of Jesus' kingship is from the wise man that we see in Matthew 2.2. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the wise man, right out of the gate, they say that he is king of the Jews. So Jesus is king certainly we also see Jesus's kingship in his conversation with Pilate with Pilate when he is on trial Jesus answered my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world so Jesus is a king and kings by definition have a kingdom and he says that his kingdom is not of this world. We also see that Jesus affirms his kingship by not rebuking his disciples. He doesn't rebuke his disciples when they claim that Jesus is king. Saying blessed is what? Blessed is the king who comes into the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke nineteen thirty-eight. The disciples proclaim this, that he is king, and Jesus doesn't stop them. He just lets them go. So the, the answer from silence is, yeah, they're right. Jesus is king. And we see the rule of Jesus exalted over all things after his resurrection. So we see the kingdom not of this world before death, burial, resurrection. And then afterwards, we see that he has rule over all things. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, it says, and some of the Pharise- Oh, I'm having a delay here says that that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So we see after the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus, right? God the Son, remember we talked about the hypostatic union, God the Son is always God, and God has always been king over all things, right? Nobody, nobody disputes that. But this is a big deal because, remember, Jesus, or the Son of God, took on flesh, and he's the God-man. According to the divine nature, he was always king. But Jesus, according to the human nature, was not always king, right? He was a servant, but through his perfect sacrifice... God gives him the name above every name, which is what? Somebody say it. What's the name of God? Yahweh, which is what we say, Lord. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father, given rule and dominion over all things, put under his feet. He is given the name above every name. He is exalted to what? To lordship. To rule over all things, not just the kingdom, not of this world, but over all things in this age and in the age to come for all eternity. Christ is exalted to kingship, fully resurrected bodily. It is fully done at this point. And so he is seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. He's seated, but he's also ruling. He's interceding. But he's also ruling, and it's for over all things and for the benefit of who? The church, his bride. Remember, that's, this, this is why he died in the first place. Why he did everything he did was for the church, for his bride. And so he is ruling for all the benefits to go to the church. So Christ is king as well. And so this is all fun and good. I think, I think you're all convinced that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. I don't think anybody would have argued that coming into here, but maybe we have a little bit deeper understanding. But some of the things that are interesting when you start to look at these offices and the way that the offices function, we also see these functions throughout Scripture, just generally speaking. In fact, we call, or the Bible calls, and so we call Christ the second Adam, correct? See the true and better Adam, the second Adam. But we see a parallel function of the offices in the garden with adam as well so we have we've, we've taken time to to dive into the second adam of, as prophet priest and king but you can't help but notice the parallels with the first adam because in a lot of ways he functioned in the same type of functions of the offices of prophet priest and king and so when i say adam was prophet i'm doing it with scare quotes for those who are listening online he was prophet in that he had true knowledge of God and he spoke truthfully, truthfully about God. So when he received a command to do this, he gave Eve the command after uh, she was made. And so he speaks on God's behalf truthfully and fully. It is a true prophetic voice, if you would. He is speaking on God's behalf and it's done truthfully. So in a way, he's functioning as a prophet. He was priest... And that he was able to freely and openly offer prayer and praise to God because there was no need to offer sacrifices before because there was no sin and therefore no need for sacrifice. But he could offer prayer and praises to God. He could communicate and commune with God openly, offering these things up from man to God. So we've got the voice of God, God to man, man to God. But Adam, in a sense, was also king and Eve the queen, if you would, in the sense of having been given dominion and rule over the creation. So he is ruling over the creation. He's naming them. You don't get more authoritative than actually being able to give somebody their name and and who they are. And so he is ruling over the creation before the fall. So in many ways, as we see often in the Bible, what is happening is that we're trying to get back to the garden. That's why all the pictures of everything—it's all interconnected. In fact, I think it's—it's it's probably Genesis that is the most quoted book of the Bible, just generally speaking, of alluding to the pictures and allusions or allusions in uh, Genesis. And so it's all coming back to here. All things being made right, and Adam, the first Adam, functioned with this, but obviously, what's the problem? The problem is sin. He and Eve sinned, and therefore it crumbled, if you would, these functions of the offices. It destroyed these functions. Humans no longer function as prophets, for they believe false information about God, and then they speak falsely about him to others. So therefore the, the prophet function is distorted because of sin. They, are no long, uh, they no longer had priestly access to God because sin cut them off from his presence. So they cannot openly, easily, in direct communion, offer prayer and praise because sin had separated them from God. Instead of fully ruling over creation, we are now subject to what? The harshness of creation. We feel the effects of that all the time. In fact, Jessica, Jessica got to feel part of that with this baby. That is part of the, the curse of the fall. Now, creation works against us instead of us having full dominion over creation so we have natural disasters that we wouldn't have had to deal with those things in many ways rule over us if you have a tsunami you're not going to stop that that's that's creation in a very real sense now ruling over you and it's topsy-turvy so we started off functioning properly in Adam before the fall now we don't have the proper function at all after the fall and so in a real way the uh this parallel or there was a partial recovery in the Old Testament of the purity of these three roles in the establishment of the three offices in the Old Testament. So we have functioning properly before fall, dysfunction after fall, and a recovery in the Old Testament. But again, it's just the shadow. There was a partial recovery of the purity of these roles in the Old Testament. But because there is still sin in the world, we see what? false prophets in the Old Testament as well. We also see dishonest priests. We also see ungodly and corrupt kings. So even though there is a recovery in the Old Testament of these offices that is given to the people of God, it's only a partial recovery. And it is still tainted and distorted by sin because we see these functionings functions going wrong in the Old Testament as well. Christians now function in these three roles as we imitate Christ. And this is what this means for us. We see the functions in Adam, we see the fulfillment of them in Christ, but now that we are in Christ, we imitate Christ, and in many ways we are now also (laughs) lowercase prophet, priest, and king under the supervision and the subordination of Christ who is the true prophet, priest, and king. So if you see in Mark 16, 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world, and what proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So whenever you rightly proclaim the word of God to anyone, you are functioning as a prophet, lower P prophet, if you would. So if you say, Thus saith the Lord, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, that is really a prophetic function because God is speaking. It's not really your words that carry the weight. It's God speaking, and you are the mediator between what God said and whoever you're saying that to. And so we as Christians are commanded to go therefore into all nations, right? Discipling, teaching, proclaiming the word of God. And any time that we proclaim the word of God rightly, we are really functioning as a prophet. So this isn't just, you know, high, fluty, you know, theology stuff of that's nice that Jesus is this, that has implications for us. We actually operate as a prophet. In 1 Peter two nine, we are actually called priests, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. No longer is it just the Levitical tribe, the Levites, who are the priests. No, it's all the people of God are priests. And so this is what kind of makes worship theology kind of tricky because we see an expansion. We've got choirs in the Old Testament, right? The, the priests, they would offer the praises on behalf of the people. But we're all priests now in the New Testament. And so we are really all the choir. We're all offering up prayers and praises and sacrifices to God. It's not just the music man the Levites, the pastor, the minister of education. It is all of us are royal priests. And that, that theme and that title is continually applied. In 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, accepting to God through Jesus Christ. Because we are in Christ we can now offer these sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And of course, this language is all priestly language, isn't it? The, the interceding, the praying, the sacrificing that is acceptable to God, all of this is priestly language applied to the New Testament church. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says, For him, then let us continue what? offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of the lips of God that acknowledge His name. And so, we are also priests. When rightly proclaiming the Word of God, we are prophet. We now, in Christ, can offer up praises and sacrifices and prayers to God as well. We are prophet, priest, lower p, uh, lowercase p, priest. And, in a real sense, we are also kings as well. Because through Christ, in Ephesians 2.6, it says... He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this comes back to where Jesus is in the holy of holies now, the presence of God. He's at the right hand, seated on a throne, all dominion and power given to him. He is ruling, but also we are with him in a very real sense. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we, we partake in this rule, and of course we see that come into fulfillment as well in Revelation, where we see that the millennial reign and you know whatever you think about there, uh, we won't get into. But we see that the church is ruling, and Paul says elsewhere, "Do do you not know that the church will be the judge of the whole world and of the angels?" Which is an exercise of what of authority of ruling, and so in Christ we are little kings and queens, if you would, lowercase kings and queens, all subordinate to the true king, the true priest, the true prophet. And so in him, we imitate Christ in a very real way. But really, the best of all of this is yet to come. The best of all of this is yet to come. And there's no better way to close this than a quote with uh, Wayne Grudem. And it says, when Christ returns and rules over the new heavens and the new earth, we will be once again true prophets, because our knowledge will then be perfect, and we shall know as we are known, First Corinthians 13. Then we will speak only truth about God and about His world, and in us the original prophetic purpose which God had for Adam will be fulfilled. We will be priests forever, for we will eternally worship and offer prayer to God as we behold His face and dwell in, the presence, in His presence, Revelation 22. We will continually offer ourselves and all that we do or have as sacrifices to our most worthy king. Yet we shall also, in subjection to God, share in ruling over the universe, for with him we shall, quote, reign forever and ever, Revelation 22, 5. Jesus says, quote, he who conquers, I will grant him what to sit with me on my throne. As I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, Revelation 3.21. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, quote, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Or do you not know that we are to judge the angels? 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore, for all eternity, we shall forever function as subordinate prophets, priests, and kings, yet always subject to the Lord Jesus, the supreme prophet, priest, and king. So those tonight are the offices of Christ and those are a particular blessing for the church, for those who are in Christ by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you that you have brought us near, that we are no longer far off, but that we are with you, that we are in Christ and all the blessings that flow to him also flow to his church and we give him praise for all that he has done. I ask that you help us to continue to to subject ourselves to lower ourselves to your word and to your rule that we will we will walk humbly before you that we will continually to speak your word truthfully as prophets that we will continue to offer up prayers and praises to you as priests and that we will Rule and judge correctly in all things according to your word Pray that you bless us, that you guide us That you forgive us of our sins In Jesus' name we pray, amen
0: Thanks for listening For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord You can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com fbc fbcdumas at hotmail.com You can also reach us by phone at 806
1: We'll see you next time.